0: all right we are back i mentioned the top of the program we may take some looks back 50 years ago and i want to just mention in passing the fact that i finally got around to reading a book chronicling one of the great tragic events of 1968 the assassination of robert f kennedy the book is exactly that title it was written by william turner and john christian this reminds me of the fact that 15 years ago in june Mr. Miller and I traveled down to Los Angeles to take part in a conference that was looking back at what was then the 35th anniversary of RFK's murder. And the author of that book, Bill Turner, was one of the people down in Los Angeles. There is a new book out on this topic by Lisa Pease. Mr. Miller and I joined Lisa Pease in getting into the Ambassador Hotel, the scene of the crime. It has since been torn down. And I did note with some sadness that uh, Bill Turner left us last year. This is a book I've been meaning to read for some time, and, uh, well, I was very impressed at how well written it is. I was shocked to realize that Turner had worked very closely with Vince Bugliosi on this matter. In fact, in fact, Bugliosi was originally uh, tasked with writing the book, and he deferred to John Christian and Bill Turner in, in his stead. We talked to Vince Bugliosi, I think, three times in this program, and I think we had an equal number of visits with Bill Turner, uh, one of which is not on our website, the very first one. However, a CD copy of that was recently uncovered, and we're going to, uh, I think, replay that in its entirety sometime in January or February. He was always, always uh, a person worth hearing. We'll probably do a retrospective and then on the same program perhaps bring Lisa Pease on to talk about her new book on the subject. Another researcher we communicated with, uh, John Hunt, also has a book out this year. Unfortunately, John passed away unexpectedly a few months ago. As part of his research in the RFK case, many years ago he came to Sacramento to look at the state archives and stayed in my home. Anyway, um, RFK's assassination is a topic that we should devote some time to, and we will, just not anymore today. Uh, Bill Turner, I do want to note, was just an incredibly talented investigative journalist. And we are pleased to note that uh, for this year, 2018, Time magazine has uh, cited the Guardians of the Truth as the magazine's Person of the Year, They broke precedent in this case by including, among these guardians of the truth, Jamal Khashoggi, making him the first deceased person to earn this award. We made mention on this show some months back about one of the other recipients of this, Maria Ressa, chief executive of Rappler News website. She's been made a legal target in the Philippines for her coverage of President Rodrigo Duterte. And by the way, this dovetails with the stories of Facebook's abuse of power. In the Philippines, apparently 90% of the population gets its internet access through Facebook. Don't ask me how that works, but apparently that is how it works. And Duterte's government has basically squads of people whose job it is to put fake news and influence public opinion through Facebook. What a surprise. And although I'm itching to take further wax at Facebook and the evil empire of Silicon Valley... Uh, I do think, in fairness, I need to look back 50 years and say a few positive things about tech. It turns out that 50 years ago, a presentation, or a series of presentations were made at a conference in San Francisco that really just set the stage for the tech revolution that we have benefited from. To quote from an article by Levi Sumigaseh, Long before PCs and the web became ubiquitous, Doug Engelbart stood up at a computing conference at San Francisco's Civic Auditorium for a revolutionary demo. He showed off a mouse made of wood that could manipulate electronic text and a computer that displayed different programs in Windows on a screen. He collaborated with colleagues miles away using video. When it was over, he got a standing ovation. In just 90 minutes in front of about 1,000 people, December 9, 1968, Engelbart kicked off the personal computing revolution and changed everything. Among those watching were technologists who would devise many more of the advances we now take for granted when we use a computer, a tablet, and even our phones. Alan Kay was there. Among his many contributions to computing, he later pioneered the graphical user interface, which is why we can see icons, images, and photos on computers. Andy Van Dam was there too. He later helped create hypertext, which led to the technology that allows us to navigate web pages. At the time of the demo by Engelbart, an engineer who was director of Stanford Research Institute's Augmentation Research Center, Computing was the domain of technologists and researchers done on big mainframes that belonged to large organizations or the government. What if in your office, you, as an intellectual worker, were supplied with a computer that was alive for you all day, Engelbart asked the audience. His most famous invention may have been the mouse. But half a century ago, he showed the world the possibility of an information-based workforce said author and journalist Stephen Levy, it was the mother of all demos. One of the creators of Siri, Apple's virtual assistant, Adam Cheyer, said you can argue that Engelbart was the most influential computer scientist ever. Earlier this month, Cheyer and other tech pioneers, such as Tim Berners-Lee and Vint Cerf, who are known as the inventors of the World Wide Web and the father of the Internet, respectively, gathered at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View to celebrate the golden anniversary of Engelbart's demo. One of our correspondents has made numerous visits to the Computer History Museum over in Mountain View and try and make a visit ourselves in the weeks to come and and update this 50-year anniversary. A lot more could be said about it. They have changed our lives. A lot of it's been for the good, but we just think on this program that uh, we must not lose sight of some of the unintended consequences tech is bringing into our lives. Like evil robots. Like evil robots. Let's leapfrog back over 1968, 50 years further into the past, to look at 1918. It was noted for Veterans Day in November that this was indeed the, the centennial of the armistice of World War I. Originally, the holiday that was set up to commemorate the end of what was called the War to End All Wars was titled Armistice Day. Unfortunately, after World War II and the Korean War, Congress changed the holiday to Veterans Day in order to honor all American veterans. But not everybody agreed with the name change. World War II veteran Kurt Vonnegut said, Armistice Day was sacred. Veterans Day is not. The anti-war group Veterans for Peace holds regular Reclaim Armistice Day's events on November 11th, arguing that the day was originally meant to celebrate peace, not militarism. Spokesman Rory Fanning, a veteran of the Afghanistan war, who became a conscientious objector, said Armistice Day was a hallowed anniversary because it was supposed to protect future lives from future wars. Veterans Day instead celebrates heroes, in quotes and encourages others to dream of playing the hero themselves covering themselves in valor if world war 2 hadn't come along world war 1 would surely be looked back as the greatest tragedy in the history of humankind in terms of warfare but it can properly be argued that world war 2 was a direct extension of world war 1 for it surely was the war came to an end without the surrender of imperial germany was called an armistice but germany was definitely treated as the defeated party it was blamed for causing the war and the truth is there was a lot of blame to go around the harsh penalties instituted on germany led directly to the rise of the nazis and its militarism and the second global conflict in a briefing printed in the week in november it was noted that um uh, after the First World War, the Allies stripped Germany of its colonies in Asia and Africa. But instead of being given independence, these long-oppressed lands were absorbed into the victors' colonial empires. Colonized peoples resented being denied the right to national self-determination, and this was also true in locations uh, like Poland. This fueled independence movements in India and several nations in Africa. World War One also redrew the map of the Middle East, The British and the French carved up the remnants of the Ottoman Empire, which entered the war on Germany's side. Under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, France claimed Lebanon and Syria for its sphere of influence, while Britain took control of what became Iraq and Jordan, as well as the Arab Gulf states. It's definitely a fact of life that the way the colonial powers drew lines all over the map, rather arbitrarily, (laughs) has set up the world for continual conflict over the next century or two. Of course, I am reminded what a Sri Lankan physician said in response to my question to him back in the 1980s about why it was they were fighting over there. He looked at me and said, do they need a reason? The truth is people don't need much of a reason to fight. But if they feel they have a lot of good reasons, well, look out. Well, we still haven't said too much about uh, this year as it ends. And I guess to get in a more uh, contemporary mood, let's let's do one of our favorites in the show: the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of the Week magazine was a good week a couple weeks back for a modern version of Smellovision with the news that scientists at Malaysia's Imagineering Institute are working on, quote, digital smell technology, unquote, that could soon allow the users of online dating services to send odors to one another. Now, I have to admit, when I read this, the idea of being able to send smells. Across the distance it was intriguing, but the idea of using it in a dating service didn't really strike me as you know the first potential use for it. Oh my goodness, is that Chanel Number Five you're wearing, Mr. Millen? Envisions this as having greater use in say a cooking program. Boy, that smells like some good gumbo. Good <laughs> it was, on the other hand, last week a bad week for robots with the news that a robot at an Amazon Fulfillment Center accidentally punctured a can of bear repellent. Boy, speaking of smell-o-vision. And as you might imagine, this unleashed a wave of eye and lung-searing concentrated capsaicin that sent dozens of flesh and blood employees to the emergency room. Of course, knowing the tech people, (laughs) they're going to conclude, well, we just needed more robots, that's all. And it was an ugly week last week for nervous flyers after Delta Airlines announced a ban on passengers bringing emotional support animals on flights longer than eight hours. Delta had noted that it's experienced an 84% rise in unpleasant incidences involving support animals, including urination, defecation, biting, and even a widely reported attack by a 70-pound dog. Well, Mr. Miller, since we're still in the holiday season, why don't you just bring back an excerpt of The Barking Dog's Christmas? Final All right, we do hope within the year 2019 we will see a resumption of normalization of Cuban relations. Sadly... Our embassy in Havana has pretty much been closed in the wake of the health problems experienced by people posted there. Um, It's quite unclear what's going on. Some sort of electronic attack by persons possibly other than those involved in the Cuban government. We just don't know who's behind this, but the attacks are real. The people there have suffered real physical injury from them, and as a result... The embassy appears to be uh, non-functioning. This is bad news. It's a story we're going to try and follow. We really have advocated for many years in this program that the embargo against Cuba needs to go. I mean, we need to normalize relations with the country. The argument is that, well, we can't support tyranny from this communist government. Well, there's a communist government running China. I don't know if anybody's noticed in Washington. And we seem to have no problem being chummy with them. On the other hand, uh, this correspondent does not have a starry-eyed view of the situation in Cuba. Yes, I've been there four times. I think it's probably safe to admit at this point. And I have enjoyed the country, and I have enjoyed the people. I haven't particularly enjoyed the government. Although, believe you me, I've seen worse. But uh, I think some of my reservations about the government of Cuba can be summarized in this little article, which I think I am obliged to read. After an outcry by prominent Cuban artists and performers, Cuba's cultural ministry this last week pledged that it would soften the country's newest censorship law. Decree 349 bans any art that is, quote, vulgar, unquote, could adversely affect children, or violates, quote, the normal development of society, unquote. It requires that painters, musicians, and writers get government approval before presenting their work and any show deemed in violation could be shut down and artworks confiscated the decree was opposed by the island's artistic community duh including renowned singer-songwriter silvio rodriguez and several artists were arrested for planning a protest yes arrested for planning a protest Announcing the government's U-turn, Cuban Vice Minister of Culture Fernando Rojas said state inspectors will now close shows only in extreme cases, such as public obscenity or racist or sexist content, or we presume anything they really don't like. But let's be optimistic. Let's hope in 2019 Cuba gets its act together and allows more freedom in artistic expression. You know, we like to insert some specific good news items in every show here's one. The Supreme Court of the United States rebuffed efforts from Republican-led states to defund Planned Parenthood this last week. Frustrating conservatives who'd hoped newly appointed Judge Brett Kavanaugh would open the door to stricter abortion limits. Two, federal appeals courts had ruled that Kansas and Louisiana violated federal law when they terminated Medicaid contracts with Planned Parenthood affiliates. The states asked the Supreme Court to intervene. But neither Kavanaugh nor Chief Justice John Roberts joined the other three conservatives in voting to consider the cases. Of course, unfortunately, although I'm glad to see that Roberts and Kavanaugh backed Planned Parenthood, we got Gorsuch, Alito, and Clarence Thomas that would reverse Roe v. Wade tomorrow if they had the opportunity. From a political standpoint, we're most curious to see how this whole Mueller investigation and uh, continuingly tightening noose around uh, Donald Trump is going to play out. Everyone seems to think that at the moment there are not enough votes to convict and impeach the president in the Republican-led Senate. But it is curious to note that on the other side of the aisle, people are lining up to run against Trump in 2020. Or at least there's lots of names in the buzz. One of them is Kamala Harris, California's new senator. We should be reminded of the fact that Barack Obama was only a senator for three years before he ran for the presidency, and to everybody's, well, to a lot of people's surprise, won. And yes, in 2019, we're going to get around to reading uh, Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, or at least book reporting it uh, for you. And there's a lot to be said in that book about why Obama did not succeed in, well, much of anything. But he was facing a rather determined and well-funded opposition, which was really beyond reason in many instances. But, I don't know, we just think it may be a little premature to be talking about Kamala Harris running for president, or the guy that lost to Ted Cruz in Texas, Beto O'Rourke. He seems to impress a lot of people, but, you know, shouldn't he actually hold office somewhere before we make him president? We've got a president right now that's never held elective office, and it, I, I gotta say, it, it doesn't seem to be working out. A friend of mine shocked me last week when he was uh, sort of bagging on Kamala Harris. He's in the legal profession. He said he didn't she did anything when she was California's Attorney General. And he said, you know, she was just Willie Brown's mistress. Now, Willie Brown is one of the most colorful political figures in the United States. And uh, he is, by all accounts, one brilliant politician. And by the way, I wouldn't wouldn't mind plugging our interview with him conducted many years back. That is also available in our archives at radioparallax.com. But uh, having lived in Sacramento for 28 years, I think most of which were Willie Brown years, I can attest to the fact that um, uh, Willie Brown has evidently had a lot of mistresses. Not something he hid. He was in the Capitol Grill one night when I was about 15 feet away, sitting with one of them. But I went on the web to run this one down, and it does not appear clear that Kamala Harris falls into that category. She evidently was a city attorney back when Willie was the mayor and they did hang out, perhaps even go out a few times, but well, research will have to continue in this, in this area if anybody cares, and I'm not sure really anybody does. So why am I bringing it up? Well, I guess, I guess in part out of admiration for, you know, what Willie Brown gets away with. Our favorite political comedian and I think America's foremost political comedian, Will Durst who often appears on radio programs with the former mayor and assembly leader. Durst said Willie Brown's the only guy he can think of that can enter a revolving door behind you and come out in front. By the way, it has come to our attention that uh, Senator Harris's first name is Indian. She is, in fact, half of Indian extraction, and that if it were pronounced the Indian way, it would be Kamala. Do you know how she actually pronounces it? No. Huh. Info at radioparallax.com. Now, on this program, over the past many years, we've tended to be very skeptical of nutritional evangelists, people who say that this or that thing that you should eat or not eat is going to change your life. A lot of the folks making these various claims have a financial stake in it and thus cannot be fully trusted. We've certainly advocated for grass-fed beef on Radio Parallax but are slowly concluding that uh, beef itself, by the way that it is raised, by the, uh, the way that cattle are fed, by the land that is cleared, uh, well, and the fact that there are methane factories, may be causing such problems for planet Earth that we have to consider c- cutting back or eliminating it. We'll keep talking about that. Organic food is another idea that seems, in some cases, better in concept than in practice. In part because there's such a lack of standardization of what we're talking about. They're making progress in that area, and advocates for organic food will no doubt be cheered by the fact that scientists in France recently recruited 70,000 volunteers, most of them women, with an average age of 44, and asked them how often they ate organic fruit, vegetables, meat, dairy, and other products. Participants were tracked for an average of four and a half years. During that time, 1,340 of them developed cancer researchers found that the quarter of participants who ate the most organic foods were 25% less likely to get cancer than the quarter who ate the least. Not strong findings, but but suggestive and interesting. The most frequent organic consumers had 76% fewer lymphomas, 86% fewer non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and a 34% lower incidence of postmenopausal breast cancers. The authors of the study say that, you know, lower levels of pesticides in organic food might be the most likely explanations for this disparity. Pesticides can mimic hormones in the body and elevate cancer risks. And, of course, there's been an association of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with the use of Roundup. And Monsanto's Roundup Ready Corn and other products uh, that are out there, something we have railed against uh, in the past and will continue to do in the future. This is a really bad idea. And here during the holiday season, everybody's undoubtedly been stuffing their face. That's what we do, isn't it? So as we wrap up today, let's, let's throw in another food item. This comes from the last word section of New Scientist." Somebody posed this question: I like hard-boiled eggs. When I peel one, the shell and underlying membrane sometimes separate cleanly, leaving a perfectly smooth white egg. At other times, the shell, membrane and first layer of the albumin all stick together and impossible to separate. So I end up with a pitted mess. Why the difference among these several responses were these. The reason some eggs are difficult to peel is because they are too fresh. The shells of such eggs are always difficult to remove cleanly. Those a few days older are much easier. This is all down to how the chemistry of the albumin or egg white changes over time. This is also why if you ever try to make meringue with fresh egg whites, they won't easily whisk up, become thick. Use older egg whites for them. Another response was, this only happens with very fresh eggs. It's the same whether the egg is hard or soft-boiled. The albumin of fresh eggs is more acidic, and this makes it stick to the inner shell membrane more strongly. Fresh egg white has a pH between 7.6 and 7.9, and a cloudy appearance due to the presence of dissolved CO2, which is a weak acid. As the eggs age, the outer shell coating slowly wears off and the egg becomes more porous. The CO2 dissipates and the pH increases to about 9.2. At this point, the inner membrane doesn't stick so much to the albumin. Well, now you know. That does it for today's program, the last of 2018. We look forward to seeing you in 2019. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Shecky Fleckman. We'll see you next week. Oh, food, wonderful food, food, food. Hi, this is James Brown, Soul Brother Number One, always fighting.